Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. What's going on, everyone? You're listening to Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, I don't know why I was about to say Austin Ye, but Mayutaba and... <laughs> you know, this is the first time you said your last name because usually you just say, and Mayu. Yeah, that's true. You brought this up before though when I, uh, when I did the intro, but... I don't, I don't like this. You're feeling a little bit of dominance now that you're feeling overly confident and cocky. I'm going to... What's that guy's name? Derry? No, not Derry. What's the bigger pockets guy's name? David Green? Uh, Brandon Turner? No, that guy's big... gone. I know. I, that's oh, yeah. I got to David Green your ass and get tough off the podcast. <laughs> oh, poor ass. Uh, so sad. Bullying <laughs> David Green. He will never have him as a guest now. Anyways, uh, you're with Austin Ye as well. Um, what's going on, man? Now I get to ask what's going on. Fuck, you're right, eh? Um, let's see what is going on. I've been talking to someone about potentially selling my nine plex that I have up north. There's still significant gains left in the property. Like I just, I literally have not gone up since I bought the property. We just done everything remote. So I've never done cash for keys with these tenants. And I know three of them would probably take a pretty moderate like cash for key attempt. So I'm trying to see if either I go up there and negotiate the vacancy and then sell it, or if someone will just make my life easy and save me a 12 hour trip, then I'd rather just do it uh, <laughs> for a slightly lower price. But I'm talking to someone about potentially selling that and then using those proceeds to pay off a good chunk of our primary residence mortgage and then mm-hmm. do the Smith maneuver and redirect those funds into something else. Other than that, uh, there hasn't been too much on the real estate front that I've been working on. I'm trying to decide what's next. Like, what am I looking for? What am I trying to buy? Getting tired of like losing out on these, some of these uh, development-ish plays and uh, there's some lower hanging fruit in the uh, commercial space, it seems right now. You and I have always like... Sorry, commercial as in commercial residential. Yeah, yeah. Commercial Resident, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to get into like industrial or retail or anything like that. But you and I have always had the stance of like we buy a property that we could just close on our own. And then if partners want to follow along for the ride, they can. But if they don't, you know, we're, we're perfectly fine. Right? At least that's been like my personal approach to this. And I think that's the, uh, that's the position I want to be in, which is where selling that nine plex would allow me to, you know, close like a two to three million dollar ish price point without mm-hmm. what budget partners come along. And if they do come along, I can just close more. But if they don't, then it's not the end of the world, right? So that's what I've been kind of like strategizing a little bit. I've talked to some people about Edmonton, different stances, different opinions and strategies, right? You and I have talked about uh, Daniel Foch, I think on Andrew Hines' podcast, just whether or not, I think that was where, where he said he, he talked about it, right? About how the MLI select doesn't really allow for a lift in the value of the properties. And it's more of just like a creative financing approach, right? So all the good points and I'm just kind of stuck in this little shit hole where I'm trying to decide like, what is the next strategy? What do I do? But um, yeah, that kind of depressing conversation, but I think a lot of people go through the same thing points as well. But what have you been up to? No, I think that's a good approach that you're, I mean, what's holding you back from making moves is your primary, right? Like the variable, it's on variable. So that's going up and you bought it not too long ago. So if you can pay down a decent chunk, then it opens your sort of avenues to different strategies and you can feel less stressed. Cause I know that's, that's a source of stress for everyone. If you're not house hacking and your mortgage is massive, dude, like you got to put food on the table first. It's more about the Smith maneuver for me on the primary residence. Like the, the mortgage payment itself, I think we're okay with, like, I'm not struggling to like make the payment or anything like that, but 
once. So I have a 700k. All right, all right, I get it. You're not broke. <laughs> you just got to clear that shit up. All right. All right. My, my wife pays that shit, bro. So it's not a, it's not an expense for me, but I realized at 7% or 6% or something like that. And it's a 700k mortgage. So that's a 42,000 a year interest expense. That is not a tax deduction, which fucking that's true. nuts, right? Yeah, yeah. I can Smith maneuver this shit, make at least like half or like two thirds of it into a tax deduction. That's a sizable tax deduction, right? So I was talking to my dad about this on the way in, just trying to figure out what the tax consequence would be of the sell versus being able to save like 30,000 a year as a tax deduction, right? So it's more on that side because like the nine plugs, mm-hmm. I thought I would ever sell. I was going to keep it for like whatever amount of years and like very small mortgage paid off and stuff like that, right? But just realizing like the value of doing the Smith maneuver right now and then still reinvesting it, but just increasing my tax deductions, that, uh, that's really what's driving it. So it's, it's a little complex, but we'll, so we'll see what happens. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. I guess like the main thing is just making sure that you're able to get the return higher yeah. than the HELOC rate because that's like 7, 7%, something like that. Anyways, I'm tired of, I'm tired of hearing what's going on with you. <laughs> I got it. Otherwise, we'll make this preamble 20 minutes. Um, on my end of things, uh, not much. So let's get jump straight into the pot. <laughs> <laughs> you make it mean, but it's crap, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Like it's uh, it's in. I see a lot of people are doing memes right now, but it's so it's such easy content. Like literally, my admin will send me a couple of things. I'm like, here are some topics, and then you have ten pieces of content in 20 minutes, and and that's really about it. So going a little bit harder on social media. Again, with the mortgage agent thing, planning that out as well. Looking at probably launching sometime in February, but we'll see. Also, oh, I guess I, I should mention this now. We're doing live Q&As, Ask Me Anythings on the Rise Facebook group. And this month we have Kellen, a multifamily expert. It's going to be Ask Me Anything on multifamily. Next month, we're going to be having um, Andrew Trebetta, who has been on this podcast before, and Ask Me Anything on the paralegal tenant side. It's more so a lot of business debt for me so far this week. That's a good way to put it. Is is business development in terms of next moves on acquisition? Honestly, not exactly sure what it's going to be just yet. Like my mind changes from one thing to another pretty frequently. So I think yeah. I need to just buckle down and think through what my goals are in terms of the like lifestyle and what is going to get me there. And uh, just to that point, you were saying about the podcast on Andrew Hines and Daniel Falch. I don't want to mince words or put anything in their mouth that they did or didn't say to so make sure to listen about the podcast guys for yourself but it was something along the lines of uh so you could over leverage on cmhc because like an appraisal value doesn't necessarily mean what you throw it on the market and, and sell it for right and sometimes these things may appraise uh, much higher than what they would sell for on the free market and then you lever up on top of that well above 80 percent loan to value right although the amortization longer so is that really a sustainable strategy? Could be, maybe not, but to each their own, right? Uh, you got to just make sure that the strategy makes sense for you. Uh, lastly, I think we should mention property taxes. I know that was a hot topic, dude. Where were they proposing that property taxes increase? Well, you're in Toronto, eh? you're, you're going to feel this shit. <laughs> you're gonna feel yeah, but honestly, it's not, I think people are over-exaggerating how much, like, dude, like your property tax is two to three Gs. That's a whole ton of money spread out in the year. True. <laughs> That's an extra, like, tell me someone can't cut down uber eats just like one uber eats meal a month and boom you I have think, enough i i think it's a principle of it if you start with a 10 percent increase this year what is next year what is the year after that versus while well, what was the guy's name tory i can't remember john tory or yeah john tory john tory while he was in office his entire thing was he's gonna like husband of the year yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're starting to be then 
You know, no, 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 no. <laughs> I might have to edit that out. No, but go on, go on. Um, his entire campaign was he's going to keep property taxes low because there's a significant population in Toronto, I think, that's still occupying the detached homes that are senior residents, right? So like while yeah. us, like our income will go up and for us, it's like, okay, $400 for a given year and not the end of the world. A lot of people today, like they would never be able to buy into the houses that they have today if the property tax was actually at a good mill rate of like 1% or something like that based on like yeah. assessed values and stuff like that. So they're the guys that are going to feel it the most. And then you've got like, what does that mean for like the sales and stuff like that, that people in that like a 10% increase in the property tax per year is $400. But so even if it's 40, 50 in one or two or three years, if they keep it up, right, what does that mean? It was interesting. I thought it was because of a reduction in the land transfer taxes. And then someone else had mentioned development charges, but uh, Pre, who we've also had on the podcast here before, messaged me saying that the development charges actually go into a separate account for that capital improvement. Yeah. So it can't, it can't directly be related to like the operating budget. So I don't yeah. know. I don't know what kind of shit storm is brewing up in Toronto, but um, I'm sure it's going to hit multiple cities. Like it's just going to get progressively worse, I think. So our mayor actually had an announcement yesterday. Ali, she's being transparent. She said that we're at a 1.8 billion, like when she inherited a financial mess, her words, at the city, which includes a $1.8 billion budget shortfall. So she at least is, is trying to make a dent, right? Like there's only a couple of things I bet that she's able to do. You can only cut so much. She needs to increase revenue. And I, maybe it's an unpopular opinion. I'm of the side that it's fine to increase property taxes because Premier River, a lot of people have seen a ton of growth in the Toronto real estate market and the property taxes didn't necessarily keep up with that. I mean, you're getting growth 10% year over year above and beyond that. Um, and you know, it's, 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 it's a reasonable ask, right? Especially if the city is in a fucking nearly $2 billion budget shortfall. I don't know, it's just me, but I agree. Like if they continue to increase at 10% every single year, that might be a little bit worrisome. Um, but that being said, I mean, it's, we're still very low relative to, I think it is, are we the lowest relative to our house price? I th- it might be, yeah, across, but especially down yeah. So, so what, what, what's your yeah. thought on rental licensing? Cause Brampton brought that out as well. Um, and I'm sure it's just going to become an increasingly uh, more predominant thing. Like Windsor brought it out a couple of years Windsor, ago. Windsor, yeah, yeah. Hamilton also I don't, I don't, well, I don't like it. <laughs> I think that's going to take housing supply off of the market. It's going to incentivize people to sell their properties. I mean, because you're already cash flow negative and now you're, I mean, there, there's, there's way too much intervention in, yeah. in, in, in the free market. I, 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 like we're already seeing it in Windsor right now, the student rental market. Go on House Sigma, dude. Everyone is trying to offload it, right? And if you're going to be closing down, I know I, I get I get the point of it as well. You don't want illegal units. But if you're closing that down, you're going to put more upward fucking pressure on the rental price. I think it's going to be the owner-occupied rentals that essentially disappear from the market, right? Like if, if you or I have right. like four units and it's purpose-built for a rental, we're not going to all of a sudden be like, hey, we're just going to keep this property vacant. Right. But if you make it more difficult for people to rent out their existing basements while they live upstairs, like adding an additional layer of like bureaucracy to go through, then it yeah. just, it's a pain in the ass. I was with. Well, so- I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Are they trying to add more supply or take more supply? Because this is taking more supply off the market. I think they're trying, they trying to improve the quality of the supply, which like. Which means you're taking oh, more rental supply as well. Yeah. I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a focus right now, in my opinion, but whatever it is, what it is. What's the end solution here? And it comes down to like a free market theory. Like I think there's a couple of studies out there that just basically supports that if you just let the market dictate the demand and the forces will just balance itself out, right? Kind of like in the US where uh, there's a little bit more of like a, an oversupply 
apparently that's uh, at least the conversation that I got. So I don't know, that might be the solution, but uh, you know, everyone that is upset about it, I think just sitting at home and just being quiet about it doesn't work. Like you gotta be loud about it. Um, that's my stance. Um, so with that being said, and on that topic, our guest today is Jack Bernstein. Jack is a very impressive individual. He's got a portfolio of real estate assets over $10 million, but really what makes him unique is he's a realtor that focuses on multifamily apartment buildings, uh, both smaller stuff, three to four units and above as well. And he does the uh, larger apartment buildings as well in partnership with the peak multifamily guys. But really what made this episode unique is we kind of talked a lot about the alternative investments he's made. And that's, um, that's been really inspiring for me, at least personally, right? Like I've always found a lot of the random investments that Jack has going on super interesting. And it's kind of like unique businesses that you or I would never really think about, right? So if you guys are interested in that space, so it all goes hand in hand, just talking about growing up, scaling your real estate portfolio, and then kind of moving into alternative investments and more active business income streams as well. So hope you guys enjoy the episode. As always, if you do enjoy the episode, share it with a friend, drop a five-star review for us on Spotify. I'm pretty sure we failed our goal last year, but uh, let's work towards hitting it this year. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest. He's here for another podcast episode, doing a bunch of new things. Excited for this, Mr. Jack Bernstein. <laughs> Jack, how's everything going, man? Going good, guys. Going good. It's been uh, it's been a couple of years, I think, since the last time being on. So super excited to catch up and uh, kind of dive into what I'm up to now. Yeah, Jack, super super interesting for myself, at least. Like every time I talk to you, you're up to something completely different. So for anyone that doesn't know the holistic picture of Jack. What is it that you do? What are you been up to? Even if you give everyone like a backstory and the quick backstory on how you got started, everyone can kind of go back and find your first episode for that. But since then to now, kind of what you've been up to as well. Yeah, I'll just kind of take it back real quick on how I started. So um was in software sales for a long time. And as a lot of people know, software sales is pretty good because it pays very well, but it's also a fairly flexible job. So while I was getting commissions and earned income and stuff like that, I started acquiring real estate over kind of 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. And from 2018 onwards, I had basically a five-year vision that I was going to buy a bunch of passive income or sorry, passive real estate and different um, passive income strategies and then leave my corporate job and then pursue real estate, which was my passion full-time. So I was lucky and fortunate enough to do that in 2021 and just celebrated my two-year anniversary of, uh, you know, being in real estate full-time. And it's kind of, you know, sprung a bunch of different businesses that are mostly around the investment space in real estate, but also kind of drive my core passion in business, which is just acquiring more property for myself. All right. Awesome. I feel like you get that eye level, but yeah, let's break that down a little bit. So you went uh, self-employed 2021. And so what did that mean? Like when you obviously quit your job or you left your job in tech sales, what did you do? What did that look like? Where did you go from there? Yeah. So I, I had this like really refined kind of 12 month plan in 2021 where I was going to leave in 2022. And uh, I actually found out I was working at TELUS at the time that they were going to close my division down. So I kind of had first right of refusal from my boss that I could take the first round of layoffs and they were going to give me basically one year's worth of severance, which was fantastic. Wow. Or I could stay on another six months, eight months, whatever, and move into another division of the business or whatever. So the way I looked at it was if I was planning on leaving, I may as well leave a little bit early and try to figure it out and get that payout now, then maybe staying and go to another division and leave for free. But with that being said, I probably jumped into, you know, the transition pretty quick without having maybe some of the foundations that I should have had. 
And it led me to basically build a bunch of different businesses really quickly and kind of put my back against the wall. But I was fortunate for the experience, right? Because the reality is, as most people know, you go into a different job, a different position, and you get comfortable. It takes like a year to kind of get up and running in the job. And then all of a sudden, two or three years has gone by, right? Right. So I don't think there's ever a good time to actually do it. It's one of those things where you just kind of say, okay, you know, I think I can take on the risk. I've got some fail safes in place, maybe a bit of money aside, like it's either now or never. Right, right. Well, I almost want to dive into some of the things that you're up to today. So I guess when you were starting off, you're trying different businesses. I think we actually touched a little bit on that on the first episode. But since then, it seems like you refined what your focus is on the past year or so, which is crazy to think because everyone's been sort of taking their foot off the pedal, as you probably know, Jack, with everything going on in the real estate world. But just with our conversation before the podcast, you are in full force and you are crushing, it seems like, everything that you're doing. Would you let the audience know the different sort of avenues that you're doing from investing, active income, so on and so forth? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I got about five or six kind of like active income businesses that I'm working on right now that, that all are somewhat vertically integrated. So like they all feed each other kind of different leads and stuff like that. So the business that I used to help transition myself from my corporate job to doing real estate full-time was my coaching business and basically kind of having students that springboarded from a Toronto Life article that I did in, I think it was like 2020 or 2021 that, you know, got a fair bit of people reaching out. So after having that coaching business for two, three, four years, you know, students started having issues with different people that were helping them, professional services. And one of the common denominators was realtors and brokers. So I decided that I was going to add that to my skill set of my portfolio, not only for my own deals, but I figured that, you know, with my own experience and some of the connections I have in the industry, I'd be able to add a lot of value and service to people. And it was easy to kind of grow that business because right away I had a bunch of people who wanted to work with me, which was my student base at first, but then it also springboarded pretty quickly into other people reaching out and that business has been growing. So there's two businesses there. There's uh, someone that I do some coaching with that I subcontract some students from, and then I have my main coaching business and then the realtor business. And then I have my private lending arm. So I'm still always doing different loans and stuff like that. And then my fifth business that I kind of combine a bunch of other, what I call LP investments in. So limited partner, where I've gone into five or six different kind of business avenues and actually made passive investments in. So things like laundry mats, restaurants, bars, stuff like that. And then the one that I'm the most excited about and you know that I've been learning a lot from is working with um, Mark Baltazar and Mike Rockall, helping out doing some stuff with their fund at Peak Multifamily, and then also learning a lot from Mike Rockall on the apartment building broker side. Yeah, that was a lot. All right, let's let's uh I, I broke it down into three things I think we'll dig into because obviously it's only like a four-minute yeah. podcast. We can't go into everything here, but I'd love to learn a little bit about the realtor business, um, the limited partner business, and kind of what that looks like and how you possibly are doing that. And then obviously peak multifamily, kind of what your role is there. But let's start with the realtor business. So you're a realtor, you're based out of was it Burlington? I can't, I can't actually remember. <laughs> I, I was in Liverpool, but I'm in Mississauga oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're in Mississauga. Yeah. Okay. And you've got primarily investor oriented clients. So how does that work? Because very few investors can make the numbers in the GTA work. What areas are you servicing? How are you doing that? Or is it ultimately just like a certain type of clientele that you have that can make the GTA work? 
Yeah. So I started off the business a little bit unorthodox in the sense where what I was doing is I was looking for deals and underwriting them myself. And then basically would put it out there like, Hey, I have this deal. Let's hit this criteria. And I would shop it to investors that I know. And then they started buying them and then they started buying them. And then the addressable market that I was hoping to serve was kind of like the Mississauga to Hamilton market, but it's branched out, you know, a bunch further as deals kind of come across and we get listings in different places. So it's an interesting business because as most people know in real estate, everything's word of mouth, reputation and stuff like that. So if you provide good service with someone and, you know, they have a good experience with you and most importantly, you make the money, you know, they're going to reference you and you're going to get more deals and stuff like that from it. So that business in, I think, five, four or five months has, you know, grown from basically zero to what it is now. And uh, next year, we're hoping to have like a seven figure year from what's called GCI gross commission income. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit more, obviously, with continuing off of my, you said, with the industry being sort of at a standstill. It seems like obviously people have a lot of confidence when you run your numbers, you show them the deal analysis, so on and so forth. When you were first sort of getting started, were you getting clients immediately or did you have to do any marketing whatsoever? Like, how does that look like? Because people who are looking to enter the industry now, I think the biggest fear for them is getting leads, especially with sort of the condition of everything. Yeah, I think people take a, a bit of the of the wrong approach on the realtor side, right? Like most people decide to get their license and then decide to build their brand and reputation and things like that. And it's, it's really hard to get started from nothing, right? So I took a bit of an unorthodox approach where I started on the investment side, met a bunch of people, like made a real big effort to network and kind of get my name out there and build reputation. And then once I got my license, I had already kind of bought myself some credibility and contacts and you know, also from doing my own deals, I, I had a bit of an advantage on kind of knowing how the paperwork worked and, and doing off-market stuff. So I guess my advice for anybody, if they're starting out in something like that, is position yourself with someone that's already doing it. And don't be afraid to do kind of some of the, the crappier work at first, right? Like a lot of realtors hate doing leases. So if you come in and you go to a big realtor and they probably have $100,000 of leasing work a year that they don't want to do, you can walk into a six-figure business and just take that on and you're going to learn the business really quick. And once you build trust with that person, you know, they're going to start throwing you bones here and there and you might get a listing, you know, you might get some buyer clients or whatever. So I don't think there's any specific way to become successful in it. You know, not everybody does it the same. However, I think that you're disadvantaged if you try to do it like everybody else and just try to start from scratch without trying to align yourself with anybody. Yeah, it sounds like you're finding the deal first because most most realtors, I think they come out here and then they go, okay, I need to find like a buyer that wants to like buy a property. And then once you find that buyer, you're going to go out and you're going to look at whatever properties they're interested in. Sounds like you're going a little bit the opposite way and you're going, let me find a deal first in whatever market this is. I'll market the strength of the deal and then there will be a buyer. Is that kind of what you're going going with? Yeah, it's become a bit of both now, but that that's what I originally started with, right? Like there was no, when I started as a realtor, there was no guarantee that I was going to have success. So I was also A-B testing with different strategies and stuff. But I thought about, you know, how do I offer something that's more unique than other brokers and realtors? And the realization that I came to was that a skill set that I can kind of see some diamonds in the rough and be able to bring those other people where maybe they might not see them. And uh, through that, we built a lot of great relationships and we've moved a lot of properties in a short period of time. Awesome. Do we want to dive into the uh, multifamily stuff, Maya, or did you want to round some stuff? Yeah, off no, let's go, let's, go into, let's go into multifamily. We'll come, we'll come back into the limited partner side. Um, so I think that's pretty cool as well. So 
So the realtor business is there. Uh, and then obviously you've got a lot of stuff that you do with peak multi-com. I'm not a hundred percent sure what your role is there, but uh, like, how does that work? And how did you get into that? And, and what, what's your role and, and so on there? Yeah. So just like how I was saying with, you know, how you start on the realtor side for someone who's maybe starting new uh, to align yourself with someone who's doing where you want to be. So I always knew Mike Rockall, who was one of the founders of Peak from the broker side and knew that he was pretty heavy influence and in actually selling apartment buildings and stuff. So I knew that that's where I wanted to be eventually on the broker side, as opposed to maybe focusing on smaller stuff. So I approached Mike and uh, we ended up kind of forming like a partnership and Mike ended up making a team and I ended up joining his team at Keller Williams. And then basically, because he's so busy with his fund, getting everything up and running, I've been helping a lot on the broker side and taking on a lot of that kind of deal flow and stuff like that so that him and Mark can focus on the fund. So just natural progression of me kind of working with them over the last little while, ended up doing some fundraising stuff and kind of helping them on the fund side, as well as me being an investor in the fund myself. So I'm a big believer in if you're going to kind of work on something or, you know, contribute towards it, you should put your money where your mouth is and also be a investor too. I mean, being an investor yourself in the fund and raising capital, what are some of the things that you look for on the multifamily side when, when deciding when to invest into it? Because there's a lot of opportunities out there, but there are probably some criteria that you're looking for that makes a good multifamily investment. To be honest, like there was a lot of things I didn't know that I learned very quickly, right? You know, I, about a year to a year and a half ago, was putting offers on 20, 25 unit buildings and I thought I had the proper skill set aligned there. Thank God those offers didn't go through or, or didn't get accepted because once I started working with Mike and Mark, I realized that, you know, there was probably a 30, 40% skill gap that I was missing do some of these deals. I think a lot of people, what they don't realize now is like what their true cost of bridge financing is and their true carrying costs. And, you know, I think people don't really realize when they're sizing up from residential to multifamily of the capital requirements that are there and how capital intensive it actually is. And it's funny now being on the broker side, like I understand when I get an offer from someone that's sizing up from residential or I get an offer from someone that's seasoned in multifamily, the way they write the offers are completely different and the things they care about are completely different. So it just shows you that even though it's a very similar business, it's also very different in the same sense. And in residential, you can hurt yourself financially, but it's somewhat hard to financially destroy yourself. In the large multifamily space, you can make one wrong move and you can financially destroy yourself. So proceeding with caution is much more apparent. Mm -hmm. So you bought up a pretty good point. The difference between residential and multi from a realtor perspective in drafting up condition and paperwork. Can we talk about how that transition has been? What common sort of conditions you're putting in in the multi that you don't traditionally see in the residential and other considerations? It looks like Maya wants to jump in and say something. No, I, I, think you was, I think you meant more like investors, right? Exactly. Are, are you saying on the realtor side or are you saying there's a significant difference between like investors leveling up and investors that were already multi-family guys? I, I think it's a combination of both. Like when you see how someone from the residential side, maybe someone that's had five, 10 properties sold off their portfolio and they're sizing up compared to maybe some of our other clients that have five, 6,000 units, the way that they write offers and the, the way that they underwrite deals, I find is very different. And you know, most of the people who are sizing up on properties are looking for these like really distressed kind of value add properties that are you know, so-called burr properties, right? But burring doesn't work as well and doesn't scale up as well to multifamily as people think 
these buildings are really made for long-term capital preservation. And it just doesn't scale the same way it does from the residential side. And I think people have false expectations where they think they can flip these buildings and, you know, six months, eight months, nine months. And the reality is they're just not meant to do that. (laughs) So do you think the multifamily spaces then meant more so for like the funds and like syndicators and like, like the three of us, like cooling, like, like whatever we consider as like spare change or or investable capital and leaving it aside. And kind of injecting there. Do you think that's a model or like, because people were doing birds like a couple of years ago, no, like 2020, 2019, 2021, maybe. But yeah, I think with low interest rates, like a lot of things were possible, right? It, it drove like a lot of, a lot of different strategies that probably weren't like good long-term strategies. No, I think it's for everybody. I just think that uh, the expectation of how long your capital should be in a deal, longer term investors, you know, guys that I work with that have huge portfolios, like none of them think the same way of recycling capital at the same speed that maybe guys sizing up from residential do. Yeah. So the way they yeah. look at deals of saying, hey, you know what, my, this is actually a good deal because my money's stuck in it for 18, 24 months. I want this deal still. Whereas if I go to someone on the residential side, they're like, no, that's way too long for me to leave my money in. But they're looking at it different. They're looking at the long-term CapEx, the long-term tenant profile, you know, other things, right? They're looking at more the macro, the five, 10 year, whereas I find a lot of residential guys are looking at the two to four to five. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, really how real estate should be invested is looking at the long term. I think we've just been spoiled with the capital appreciation that we're used to like pulling our money out quickly, but that shouldn't be the benchmark even for residential in in, in my honest opinion, right? So I kind of want to scale things back again. So you were mentioning the differences between people, like the bigger guys, not only underwriting. So by underwriting, I, I assume you mean not only are they more conservative, but they're okay with capital being tied in longer, but conditions wise when draw, uh, when dropping in offers. Can we talk about the differences on the conditional point of view and the documentation that's needed on the multi versus the residential? Because I think that's very important for someone who wants to scale up. It's not only about like just scaling up, it's about knowing what to add in your contracts. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of the due diligence clauses. So making sure all that stuff is in there, like, you know, stuff on your phase one, if you have to go phase two, things like that. Also making room in your conditions for contingencies and delays. So a big thing in multifamily is, you know, delaying a property or delaying a closing or this, that, whatever, you know, typically there's large fees associated with that. So a lot of times we want to be able to cap those fees because the reality is, is with CMHC or with bridge financing, there's a lot of things that slow these deals down and they don't happen very quickly. I would say also, you know, being able to write an offer in a way that protects your client, but isn't something with eight or nine pages. So a lot of times, you know, you'd be very surprised at work with these guys at multi-billion dollar funds and they'll come in with conditions on a five, six, seven million dollar building. And it's one page of conditions, but it's so properly written on how it protects their client that it portrays confidence to the buyer, the seller on the other end. Whereas I see people on the residential side or agents who aren't used to it where they come and there's six, seven, eight pages of conditions. And what that says to the seller on the other side is basically this person's probably not serious or they've never done a transaction like this before. And Multifamily is weird, right? It's not always about price. A lot of times, you know, people want to sell just knowing that you can close. And a lot of these people have really deep pockets. And sometimes if you just offend them by the way you write your offer or how you present it, they just won't sell the billing to you because they don't need the money. Listen, that's real fuck you money there. Yeah. <laughs> so so what is the solution? Because like, how do you level up? Because I, I don't think anyone wants to say in 
like single family duplex, triplex, like fourplexes for too long. I think you can relatively easily get into like under a 10 unit building, which is like where we, me and Austin have both been playing, right? Without like too much difficulty. But once you get like above 10 units as like a general like rule of thumb, the price points get up there. And so then we either have to be able to tie in a lot of money or you got to syndicate and raise funds. But is there any other solution? Like how do you get into like a 15 to 30 unit building if you've been doing like five to tens all this time? So VTBs are in seller financing is like the hot thing in multifamily right now because of where interest rates are. Almost every single building that we're seeing that's either on market or off market has some sort of seller financing. And we're seeing, you know, on many, many deals, first position private mortgages from the seller for 80 to 90% LTV with pretty attractive interest rates. Yeah. So a lot of these guys, um, you know, our girls or funds or whoever has the properties, a lot of them are paid off and they're okay to do that to defer taxes and stuff. But I would say the majority of our clients that are transacting right now are getting some sort of ETB in every single way. And for those that don't know what a vendor take back is, you know, basically it's when you get seller financing or whoever's selling the property decides to give you some sort of loan proportionate to the value of the sale price. On the residential side, people have been talking about it for years, but banks have really shied away from allowing it. It's very difficult. And in my, you know, experience in my, you can talk to this, it causes more problems and it, you know, it helps. But on the large multifamily stuff, it's very easy to use. And uh, most, most banks are willing to work with it. Yeah. Or the residential side, you got to get creative versus like on the, on the commercial side, you can be upfront about it and transparent and it still can actually work like legitimately. So that makes sense. So are, are you seeing then that the prices that people are asking are a little bit like overpriced and that's where they're coming from with the VTB. And then the second question is, is there not a risk on larger multifamily? Like the VTB has to be repaid at some point, right? So sure. like what do you see as like the solution? Are these properties where people are like banking a certain amount on lift on a certain amount of like tenant turnover? Like what, what are you kind of seeing there? Yeah. So most of the sellers that are offering the really strong VTBs have the exit already kind of lined up with the seller. So most of the time there's some sort of lift on tenant or there's some sort of way that within that time period, the money's going to come back and be able to be repaid back. And I would say 99% of people's strategy is going through CMHC to refinance the money out at some point. And if you can't stabilize a building in five years of ownership, which is the typical term for a VTP that we're seeing right now, you've probably got bigger issues to fry. Now, the, the other thing too is, you know, going back to your question, you're asking, if I ask for VTB, does that mean I pay a premium on price? The answer is no. People are getting great prices with seller financing right now. And that's just what the market's dictating. Uh, I just wanted to, again, take a step back and overall thoughts on on the market with with commercial, residential. Being involved, it seems like you're still doing a decent amount of volume here. What trends are you noticing overall from investors, home buyers, both on the residential and the multi-side? So investors that have positioned themselves to be long-term investors and, and look long-term scale, I'd say are doubling down. And the people that were kind of dipping their toes in the water before and were maybe in real estate because it was sexy at the time, those people are really shying away from it. You know, real estate is not sexy right now, but for people who are long-term investors, they're picking up fantastic deals all over the place. But I would say overall, deal flows down, right? So maybe someone on the multi side who maybe buys two or three buildings a year is only buying one now. And for someone on the residential side who maybe pulls off two or three transactions, maybe pulling off one now. So 
I would say everybody, no matter what is slowing down, unless you have some, you know, weird influx of capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Understood. And on your side of investing, so we chatted about your different active income streams, how you're involved in different businesses. Are you still personally picking up real estate yourself or have you taken more of a passive approach and started like investing in the fund more so than doing stuff yourself? Yeah. So a bit of both. And I always share with my students, like there's nothing wrong with being a passive investor too, right? You get busy, you know, if there's a good opportunity that comes along that you can have a piece of and you have capital to deploy and the deal makes sense. Like I'm a big proponent of that. But uh, yeah, still actively buying. I would say, you know, all the active income streams that I work on, my main business is still being a full-time real estate investor. I closed on a property in Barrie about a month and a half ago. I got another one closing there in the next 90 days. And then a house that I've patiently been waiting on in Blue Mountain for the past couple of years that was pre-con. I should finally be done at some point in June. So yeah, still adding two or three kind of properties in the next 12 months. So what are you looking for on your personal investing side? Because I know on the, I guess with the fund, that's how you put your skin in the game on the multifamily side of things. But from your personal residential investing, what criteria in this current market makes sense to you? So I'm buying uh, less, uh, I don't want to say less distress because I do like distress, but less heavy renovation projects. So what I'm finding is at good prices, I can find decent assets and decent areas that don't need crazy extensive rentals that I used to do and used to cause tons of headache. But what I started doing was I started kind of joint venturing with people and doing different deal structures. And I, I kind of figured out like a little loophole or hack that I've done twice now in the past couple months. So I basically aligned myself up with someone who's going to be a first time home buyer. They might not be able to afford a down payment on a property, but they can qualify for maybe a five or $600,000 house with CMHC. I partner with them as the money partner, take 50%, typically retain most control on the asset. They qualify for the financing. And then I find the deal, I buy it and put up all the cash. But because of my realtor fee, my realtor fee and commission is paying for about 30% of the down payment that <laughs> I'm getting into the deal for them because they're only putting five or 6% down. You know, I'm getting in multiple projects now for only 30, 40, $50,000 of my own capital. They're super happy because they would never be able to get a down payment together to get into an asset. I'm super happy because I own 50% of the asset and have that asset paying a portion of my down payment down. And yeah, it's, it, you know, the model's been working really well and I think it's a scalable model so far. Yeah, that's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that. That actually early on in my journey, when I bought my pre-construction, the one that I'm living in right now, same sort of situation where the realtor's like, look, like, if you are having cold feet, I'll put in some of the money with you. I was like, how? Like, where is he getting all this? It's like, oh, yes, the commission. So you're basically reinvesting the money that you earn, right? And it also shows good faith as well, because there's not many realtors who's going to, yes, they'll sell your property, but there's not many that will actually put skin in the game and actually give you money, right? That is saying a lot. I think the key is Jack has other like sources of income as well, right? Like not, not as well. Realtors yes. also <laughs> have like multiple investment properties in different businesses. Yeah and stuff like that and have the ability to do that. So I think that's pretty cool. I think also on that topic, I just want to quickly talk about... Wait, wait, sorry. Are they are they living in the property? I assume, right? For... Uh, some of them, most of them are multis, right? So we're trying to get like duplex. Okay, okay. Like, so gotcha, they gotcha. can be unoccupied properties. Um, and then we have special basically uh, income splitting arrangements on it. But, you know, I'm a big believer in negotiation. Like everybody should, should kind of win. It should be favorable on both sides, right? So 
I'm super yeah. happy with my arrangement. They're super happy with their arrangement. That's it. And, That's uh, it. You know, it gets me more properties with higher leverage, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, I personally, it's really pretty smart idea, but um, teach their own and, and their own strategies, right? So going on that, on from there. So, so I, obviously, I, hey, I just want to quickly touch on one thing you said earlier. Yeah. I think the passive investing side is a great model for a lot of people. If you, if you're like, if you're essentially busy, have a high income like business or like something like that, I think being a passive partner is definitely the way to go. It's, it's a super easy life to like, and a way to like, like build a decent sized portfolio with like limited effort. Right. Uh, so from there, if we talk about the limited partner business, cause that's the second thing that I kind of want to, or third thing that I want to quickly touch on. So you've got the realtor side, you've got your income side coming in, uh, and now you're investing in all these different businesses. How do you go about finding these businesses here uh, that you can invest in? How do you go find, finding good partners that you can invest with? Just kind of explain to me how that entire like business side has come up, come about. Yeah. So I, I, it's a bit unorthodox. I would say I don't advertise and I don't really look for it. Um, just by putting myself out there and people knowing that, you know, I enjoy doing different investments like that. People approach me with a lot of different opportunities. I would say I turned down probably two out of three, but you know, one out of every three of those has some sort of long-term potential. And I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, so I like investing in other businesses too. However, you know, I try not to shy too far away from real estate as kind of my main investment strategy. But, you know, there's a lot of really good businesses out there. And I think diversifying at some point is a really good strategy to do. And, you know, a lot of people that didn't do that and got caught with their pants down in the real estate market, I think everybody learned a hard lesson that it's nice to have income streams that are not tied to real estate. It's true, but I guess, how do you go about evaluating different opportunities? Like if someone comes to you with a restaurant, like, I don't know, like maybe this is good, maybe it's not. Like, what do I really know about restaurants and like profit margins and stuff like that? Because I'm very similar to you. Like, I agree, like I was trying to diversify into like completely like unrelated businesses, like looked at laundromats, talked to some guys buying some and it was just going to be like a silent partner in some of their stuff. I was like, you know, like, I don't really know anything about this business. And if this partner decides to fuck all and like, just go fucking I'm out, right. Then, then I'm kind of screwed, stuck trying to run this business that I want nothing to do with. So how do you go about evaluating a business? What do you look for? Um, yeah. What's the criteria? Yeah. So most of the investments that I've done on the outside have pretty much all been distressed in some way. So I'm coming in with some sort of favorable term that allows me to dictate terms or it's, you know, what I like. A preferred strategy of mine is using something called convertible debt. So, you know, when a business goes bankrupt and fails, the shareholders in that business typically get wiped out and no one gets any money back. But people who sit subordinate on the debt table typically get paid out depending on what assets and what loans and stuff like that are left. So how I usually structure my ownership is basically that it's a loan to the business that I get to convert to equity if I please at a certain you know, value and strike price. So kind of like an option uh, on the business that doesn't expire. So what that does is it allows me to ride my loan out with the business. And if I start to see that the business is going to succeed, it's being operated well and all those kind of things, I'll convert my loan into equity. And then I share in the ups and downs of the business equally with that owner. But if the business doesn't get off the ground or get past the distress part that typically why I'm coming into, at least I have a personally guaranteed loan by uh, whoever's running that business that's also backed by the business's assets. So there's a bit more collateral for me to to kind of chase and that it also creates more passive income in the interim until I do convert to equity. 
are these businesses typically heavily levered? Because for that to work, I assume that your debt is saying it's backed by the business's asset and needs to have a decent amount of unlevered assets there. Yeah, not necessarily like, uh, you know, some of the businesses like laundry mats, like a livestock business, a bar and restaurant, stuff like that, where people either need capital for scaling, they need capital for accounts receivable. So they have orders and they can't fulfill, you know, inventory or whatever, or maybe they've put their life savings into a project and they're like 10% to getting it across the line. But with that, the business will fail and that 10% will get them over the line. So those are the kind of businesses I like helping on because not only helping people, but, you know, it springboards the venture into kind of its next chapter, right? And typically that drives for the revenue growth. So what's your role in the business after? Because you put in the capital. And so I'm making a couple of these investments myself. So I'm trying to figure out what is the right balance, right? It's like, I don't really want to be like here on a day-to-day basis, right? Nor do I intend to. But how do you drive value beyond the capital? So I take a pretty heavy advisory position until that business is stabilized. So like we'll do touch points maybe once or twice a week. Never ever do I invest anything where I'm boots on the ground because my other businesses don't allow for me to have time for that. But mostly advisory, you know, points. And and a lot of the times when I do these investments too, um, I bring a bunch of friends in that have different skill sets and stuff like that that I grew up with. And we all kind of contribute in different ways, right? So Doing business with friends is hard, but doing business with friends in the right way and in the right capacity can be very beneficial as long as, you know, people understand different boundaries and things like that. Is Interesting. It? So what's like a normal composition? Cause it, so like, if you're trying to put together a team of guys, like what does everyone contribute? What do you contribute? Like from like an advisory perspective, what are you, what's like your role from the advisor side? Are you advising on like financing? Is it like growth? Is it marketing? Like, what do you normally like opine on there? Sure. So I'll give you an example of uh, a bar in Toronto that a couple of friends and I did. They were 90% to opening. They put their life savings into it and they just need a bit of money to get past the line. But what was also holding them up was finishing construction permits and construction delays on the property. So I thought, okay, well, my experience on the real estate side with construction, permitting and stuff like that, I have contacts. I can help get this across the line quicker, mm-hmm. get us opening faster. I trust their ability from their, you know, previous experience and operating, you know, in that industry. And the numbers make sense from this perspective to me to take that capital risk. So I would say it really is determined per the deal. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's not as structured as you say, I wouldn't have like, I call this friend for that skill set or this friend for that. It's just more of a group of us, whoever has extra capital together, we'll look at different opportunities and every way we can try to help to grow that business, we'll do it because when we invest with someone, we invest with them has owners and we'd like to think we're part owners of the business, whether or not we've converted into equity or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like a real life shark tank. I applaud you for uh, for investing outside of just real estate. Uh, to your point, uh, I think a lot of us, it's a good thing that we're iron focused in what we enjoy and what we're good at, but it's also important to diversify your investments outside of just one asset class. Now let's pull things back, back in the real estate topic. We chatted a bit offline before we had this, before we started recording. But what is it that sort of keeps you up at night? Like, what are some problems, some issues that you run across in your real estate business? And I ask this because I think everyone tends to see, you know, like when they listen to this podcast, they tend to imagine everyone's extremely successful and there's no problems that go on at all. And we know that's far from the truth. We're chatting offline about like a tenant issue that you're having. So what are some growing pains that you have with managing multiple businesses or maybe just on the investing side? 
Yeah, 100%. So like, just as everybody else says, you know, I have my own challenges and not every day is easy. And I kind of came to a point where it was about six or seven months ago. And I called my best friend over who, you know, is always a good person to look at my business and my whole life from like a 5,000 foot overview. And I just said to him, I'm like, you know what? Like, I don't know how to grow these businesses anymore. I'm working every single day of the week because a realtor business demands nights and weekends and my coaching business and everything else is, you know, nine to five. So I said, I just don't know how to grow. I don't have enough time and like I'm losing sleep and it's like starting to affect relationships and, you know, just everything, right? Like your mental health and all that kind of stuff and your physical health. So we went through all my businesses and we looked at everything and he came to the conclusion. He's like, the only thing I can think of is you just need to hire. And sometimes you got to bring someone outside just to help solve these problems because it never, ever, you know, come into my mind that, yeah, maybe I need an assistant or need someone that can offload some of this. And it took me a month or two to wrap my head around like, oh, do I want to incur an expense like this? Like, is it actually going to help? Will it make a difference? And then uh, my family, you know, my grandmother just said like, what do you have to lose from trying it? You know, worst case, if it doesn't work out after four or five, six months, then it just doesn't work out. So I hired a full-time assistant that's half in my personal life and half in my business. And since then, we've been able to almost triple the revenue of the business in six months. I think at every stage of you growing your business, there's pains and there's problems. And I think part of the fun thing about being an entrepreneur and owning a business is creating hard challenges for yourself and overcoming them. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, no, that, that was really good advice, man. I think, yeah. um, no, I think a lot of people need to hear it. Everyone's got a different challenge at a different point. And, and you know, there's ups and downs in any business, right? So, so Jack, I guess on that topic, uh, you know, at this point in the podcast, we ask our guests two questions. The first question is, where do you see your business growing in the next, call it like two to three years? Like, what's the focus? How are things going to change? Like, what's it going to look like? Yeah. So I think two sides. Um, on the active income side, I think moving more so into the apartment building sales. So bringing more really good deals and helping investors size up from residential into apartments. And, you know, a lot of friends that are kind of actively looking to either do that or start doing that. And then I think on the personal side for me is just acquiring more assets and actually acquiring more larger multifamily for myself. That's very dope. All right. And then for newer investors, and you might've already answered this a couple of times, but for newer investors in today's market, what piece of advice do you have to share with them? Maybe someone that's looking to get started, jump into the market. Yeah. At any level you're at, don't be afraid to just offer someone who's in a position where you want to be in a year or two and just offer your time for free. You know, I was a five or six, seven year investor by the time I approached Mike Rocco and just said, hey, I want to offer you one day for free a week to learn how to sell large multifamily. And because I did that, it gave me exposure to a whole different set of business. So in summary, I would just say, you know, don't feel afraid to reach out to people ahead of you. A lot of people appreciate it, you know, like the recognition of people recognizing where they're at. And most people in real estate are extremely friendly and willing to give people a helping hand. That's it. That's it. No, totally agree. Uh, that's how I started kickstarted my journey as well. I was mentoring under Mike Rosart. So every weekend I'd go there and just help him with stuff and I would just learn along the way. But I don't want people to get it twisted. You don't go there and just ask for like free coaching or mentorship. You have to exchange a lot more value to receive value back. But uh, great podcast, Jack. You're always up to some amazing things. Um, I'm sure when we have you on in the next year or two, you're going to have a bunch more things to talk about, many more businesses that you'll expand into. For anyone who wants to keep in touch with you, follow your journey, how could they best do so? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Burnstone Capital or my website, www.burnstonecapital.com. Happy to take a call with anybody. 
Awesome. That will be down in the show notes below. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, which I know you definitely did. So make sure to leave us a five-star review, share it, comment, do whatever you can to support it because it helps bring great guests like Jack on. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.